John Sherrick taught four-year-olds 49 years. In dog years, that's like a thousand. I'm just saying, what an amazing ministry. And his four sons will be here. And I've had the privilege of spending time with his four sons. You will be encouraged by their testimony as well. And it will be streamed. So if you can't come but want to see the testimony to a faithful member of grace, just one more of that generation that I met here when I first came in the 70s and then later again in the 80s. And uh, this congregation has been blessed in an amazing way by those folks that built so much, not only here, but in the city and in ministries around the world. It'll help you appreciate the foundation upon which we build um, here today. We're going to continue talking about love. And I, I hope you see that it really is the linchpin of what it means to be in a Christian. Um, let me read for you again 1 Corinthians 13. The Apostle Paul, in the midst of a section on spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts, of course, is where we make our name for ourselves, serving God, right? I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing you feel good about is how you use your spiritual gift. And, and so in the middle of that, the Apostle Paul realigns the reader with this passage on love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, because tongues is one of the major gifts that's discussed, right? If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have no love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, to appreciate that, we were in the home of one of the church families that has a young second-grade son, and for Christmas, he's asked for a drum set. Now, think of an eight-year-old boy with a drum set in the room next to your bedroom, Right? Every time I think about it, I smile because it's not my eight-year-old, seven-year-old son with a drum set. The Apostle Paul says, no matter how eloquent I am, no matter how many languages I speak, I might as well be banging on drums. It's just noise. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have no love, I am nothing. Our tradition, very focused on the knowledge of Scripture as well it should be, but, but the Apostle Paul says, you know, if I know it all and, and even can speak to it prophetically, if, if it's without love, it's a waste of time. And if I have enough faith that I can say to a mountain, move, and my faith is so great that the mountain moves. But if it's absent of love, it's an absolute waste. And here he really gets to the heart. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. He's saying without love, everything else is a waste of time. He's saying that without love, everything else is a waste of time. Now, I've never bought the idea of pearly gates and Peter standing there. That kind of, to me, is um, 
But work with me for a second. Think of that. If, if it were kind of that way, that when we die, we, we go to the gates of heaven and, and Peter is hanging there and he's got the smell of fish about him and, and he says, why should I let you into the Lord's heaven? And we start listing how good we are and all that we did and the, he will ask two questions in my understanding. The first will, he'll ask is, did you embrace my son? I sent my son who died on the cross for your sins. Did, how did, what did you do in response to him? And, and if we say, well, I just thought he was a good example, according to Scripture, then it's, heaven's not ours. Scripture is very clear the one way to eternal life is through Jesus the Son, and that that question is effectively asked of every life. There's no more important question than who is Jesus and how will you respond? And that'll obviously be the first thing. But after that, what will he say to those of us about our lives? How, how will we be rewarded in heaven? And are what will be the means by which he judges the life here. I would suggest to you he'll ask one question. Did you love? Did you love? Because Jesus himself said it summarizes all the commandments. To love God and love others. Your neighbor is yourself. And I love that story because then the, the attorney in the group, the scribe says, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Are Aggies my neighbor? I think not. Um, and so Jesus tells the story of the great good Samaritan by demonstrating right that your neighbors, whoever you come into contact with, and, and you're called to love them. And so fundamentally, the ultimate judgment for each of us is did we love? So, of course, the world, knowing that, takes the idea of love and perverts it. What do we make it to mean? Well, we mean, first of all, it's emotion. I feel this way. I, I, I feel this way about this. What's the problem with that? Feelings come and go, right? Feelings don't last. I mean, love is a wonderful feeling, and, and when you have it, it is glorious. But sometimes... It just isn't there, right? Especially to the unlovely. If, if we make feelings the drive, then only the lovely are loved. What's the problem with that? There are times when none of us are lovely, right? We've made it sentiment, which is related to feelings. We've, we've made it all kinds of things. And, and I think the Apostle Paul knew that we had that temptation. So right here in the context of a broken church, he said, by the way, let me make sure you understand what love is. First of all, you need to understand that it's key. No matter what other spiritual qualifications you have, it's key. When you, when you evaluate spiritual leadership, no matter how eloquent the voice, no matter how effective the leadership, if there's not love, it's a vapor. It's key. And then he goes into this list, this beautiful list that hopefully you're beginning to memorize as we go through it every week. 
every week. Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Now, that one just annoys me. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This list of things, which, by the way, if you know Scripture, has a haunting similarity to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Why is that? Because what the Spirit will produce is what aligns with God's will. And what aligns with God's will? To love. That the more we are in submission to the Spirit, the more we lean into dependence on the Spirit, the more we allow the power of the Spirit to be effective in our life, the more that will be manifest, not by being smart. We're in a world that loves smart. We're stupid over smart. But by loving, by loving, that... that is what the Spirit produces. By the way, sometimes when you're in the midst of a situation among Christians and there needs to be discernment, one question to ask is, what does love look like in this situation? What does love look like? Today we're going to, the next four are different because each one of them says, uh, depending on the translation, part of my problem is I've memorized this in multiple translations, so I mix them together. Um, so pardon me if I mess you up with it, but uh, this translation says, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endure things, all things. It's, it's a verb with all things, a word for all things in each of the four. There's an interesting structure there as well. It's, it's um, in literature, it's called chiastic structure. A, B, B, A. The first one and the last one are parallel. The two middle ones are parallel. If you look at it, you can see that. Uh, see what they are? Bears all things and endures all things. In fact, they're so similar that the words are interchangeable. And the two middle ones also have uh, familiar, uh, parallelism, believe and hope. But today we're going to look at the first one, endures all things. There are multiple ways it's translated. It comes from a word whose root means to cover. And so some translations will say protects, as a, the way a roof protects you, it covers you. And certainly that's one thing that you could say that love does. There, uh, endures is often used. Puts up with is used. And one of my favorite uh, in the Phillips uh, paraphrase uh, love knows no limit to its endurance. Whatever it is, however it's translated, it is a tenacity of commitment. A tenacious commitment to someone. So let's look at how it's characterized. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 6 has a beautiful illustration of what this means. Paul says, we're not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. It's one of those many places where the apostle Paul is defending his responsibility as a leader, and he said, I, I, don't, I don't do it for you. By the way, I don't mean to be rude, but Christian service can never be done 
for the people. As a pastor, I've said it to you many times, I don't pastor for you ultimately. I love you, but you're fickle, right? And, and there are a lot of you. So that if, if I do it just to make you happy, I will end up in bad shape. I may have already, but that's another question. The, the, the fact of the matter is, ultimately, Christian service is done for the sake of Christ. And, and through that, you love the sheep. You love even those that bite. E, through that, you, you, you serve the Lord, but, but the ultimate service is for Him, not for the approval of people. Why? Because approval comes and goes. It just does. And sometimes I don't approve of myself, much less any of you, right? And the Apostle Paul says, I, I'm not doing this to please you. Love you, mean it. But, but that can't be the goal. Instead, we were like young children among you. And this phrase is key. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toils, our hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. What a beautiful picture of what it is to carry a burden. A nursing mom. Now, in a lot of paintings, a mother nursing is, is, is portrayed as a beautiful and sweet thing. And the reason that is, in all of life, it is one of the purest things we have as an expression of love, right? It's, it's literally an act of giving of yourself for someone else that can give you nothing back. And on one level, when it's romanticized, it, it, it seems lovely. And granted, I've never nursed, but I had a wife that did and two daughters that did. And you know what I discovered? It's sometimes inconvenient. Babies don't work around our schedules, not once. And they, they have to be fed every day, every day, multiple times a day. And in fact, there are times when I'm told by young moms, it feels as though all they did all day was to nurse and carrying that burden. That's the picture he has of a nursing mom who doesn't really get a lot in return but gives of themselves in the purest of motives out of love. The word that's used for burden or endurance, or to endure, it, 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 it's translated so many different ways. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 5. The Apostle Paul is talking about his longing for the church, and he says, so when I could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, so we sent Timothy to be with you. Again in verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. He's expressing a positive affection for them. He says, I missed you so much that when I just couldn't stand it anymore, I sent Timothy, and I sent someone to check on you. There, uh, I couldn't endure the burden 
of not seeing how you were doing. That's the way I take the word. It is love always endures. It always keeps on keeping on. And as you know, part of the point of this sermon series is I think Paul is, is using 1 Corinthians 13 to show how to solve all of the problems in the Corinthian church. And, and so, each of the problems can be illustrated with a deficit of love. And this word, which is used so few times in the New Testament, is not only used in chapter 13, verse 7, it's also used in chapter 9. So, let's see how Paul uses it of himself. He's writing to, again to defend his apostleship. Because as you remember in the Corinthian church, they had gotten in a debate of who was their real hero, whether it's Paul, was it Apollos, was it another one? And he says, you guys have lost your ball in the weeds. And he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? By the way, one of the theological distinctives of being an apostle is that personal contact directly with the Lord in the New Testament. So the 12 were chosen by the Lord to be with him. And then Paul will say of himself, I am an apostle as one unnaturally born. And by that he means my apostleship comes not by virtue of having been with him those three and a half years, but by him appearing to me on the road at that time of blinding. That's, he says, surely you know I'm an apostle. In fact, he'll continue on with that and say, aren't you the result of my work in the Lord? Verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the very seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Because what apostles did, I did in you. I was sent, the word apostle means to be sent, to take the message of Jesus Christ to people that had never heard it, and to plant churches, the, the very function of what an apostle was. And he says, of all people, I shouldn't have to defend my apostle responsibilities to you. But he's just building his case. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Christians judging each other? No. Say it ain't so. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take in a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who like lack the right not to work for a living? The context is uh, the apostle Paul defending his service. And one of the things, as you know, is that Paul is famously called a tent maker. And today, we'll refer to a Christian who supports their ministry as a tent maker, and it's rooted in the fact that that's how Paul chose to do it. He, he points out that other apostles didn't. Other apostles were supported financially in the tradition of a rabbinical system where a rabbi was supported financially. And he said the other apostles were, they were supported financially, they would bring a married woman along with them so that there was no appearance of impropriety who would help. Uh, provide for the things that men do badly, I would assume. Most everything. And he said, uh, is it only Paul and Barnabas that don't have those rights? Are we the only ones who are sent out who have the obligation to provide for ourselves? 
And it's an interesting thing because Paul, if you read what he says about money, he always insists that he has the right to it so that he can defend why he hadn't chosen to accept it. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that the body of Christ has that example that is a healthy thing to provide for those who teach the word, those who lead in the body of Christ. That, that is a foundational thing. But then he uses the fact that he supports himself to argue cases. And this one is that, that he did it for other reasons. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law itself say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? In other words, they, there was actually a law, I think in Deuteronomy, that said don't muzzle the ox. In other words, don't starve the animal while it's treading out the grain. Allow it to eat from what it produces so that your livestock is cared for. And Paul says, surely that a principle applies to us too, right? In all of life, we expect that those who do a service benefit from that service. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest for you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we don't use the right. He has chosen not, he has the right, but he's chosen not to. On the contrary, we, and here's our word, bears all things. We put up with anything. We bear anything rather than hinder the gospel of God. And part of what we bear is to support ourselves, he says. This is our word. When it says love bears all things, it is this word. We bear anything for the sake of the gospel. In the context, what is it he bears? He repeatedly says, I give up my rights. I give up my rights. Now, if there were ever a time that that were applicable? Is this that time? We're all demanding our rights, right? It's, it's what we hear everywhere we go. We all have rights. I have rights as a husband. You have rights as a wife. Our children have rights because they get everything, you know. Um, in society, in the church, wherever it is, there's a constant refrain being sung about our rights. What's the problem with demanding your rights? And by the way, our society, thank God, provides for rights. But what's the problem with me demanding my rights? You can't live in a relationship that way. When, when two people, let's take marriage for example. It's a common relationship, right? When two people live in marriage, if they only focus on each, each's rights, what happens? They're only focused on themselves. There's a constant keeping score. Well, you, you, didn't, you didn't do everything you, that, you know, you owe me. What's the problem with that? Before long, do you grow together or grow apart? You grow apart. Because what makes relationships worth? Self-sacrifice, giving, being safe, 
And so one of the reasons marriages are falling apart like crazy in our world is because we all have been taught to know our rights where the biblical principle of, of love is giving up rights for the sake of someone else, right? Now let me say, in the court case of all of the words that are used to describe love, give you one word of warning, there are some people will then try to use those as hammers against you. I'll never forget the first time I was counseling with a couple and, and the offending party said, well, yeah, I'm doing that, but you know, you're supposed to because you love me. It doesn't work that way. It's not a hammer to use to force other people to comply with you being a jerk. In other words, if I can put it in language I understand. It, it, it is a call for each of us to express the love the way Christ did. And so I don't get to say to Julie, well, you know, the Apostle Paul said you should bear all the burdens and boy, have I got some. Um, I've tried it. It doesn't work at all. By the way, just she's not here. Hopefully she's not watching. She heard the sermon twice. That's enough for anyone. Um, but what it's saying is that when we really love, we, we put up with whatever it takes. Now, are there limits to that? Of course. Um, in the greater context of Scripture, I don't believe that means that a spouse should endure physical abuse, right? I mean, there, the rest of Scripture would put limits on that, but generally speaking, that's not the problem, right? Isn't the problem for most of us, we create a lot of boundaries on what kind of burdens we're willing to bear? Like, they're irritating. They talk when I need quiet. They, they don't recognize how important what I'm doing is. I haven't seen the sports section in days. Um, in other words, isn't it true that for most of us, the burdens we really get torqued up over are really minor ones? And the Apostle Paul says, no, love bears burdens. It puts up with things. It puts up with things. As an aside in marriage, and I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. When someone comes in and starts articulating why they're so mad at their spouse, invariably they'll, I'll say, well, what is it that you're unhappy with? And, and, and the very things they list are the reasons they married them. You know, they married her because she was fun. They want to divorce her because she's never serious. You know, those kind of things. So you realize that so much of this is really perspective. What originally was attractive has become a burden, so what's changed? And while I'm on the subject of marriage, because love is kind of important to it, Julie and I used to do a whole lot of premarital counseling. We would um, welcome couples, and typically two a week, into our house for a whole evening. And, and finally it got to the point with my other commitments, we just couldn't do it anymore. And um, so people would ask me to do the wedding and they, they would get the premarital counseling. So we set up a premarital team and people stopped asking me to do their weddings, which helped me understand they really didn't want me to do the weddings. They wanted Julie to do their premarital counseling. And I can't blame them. Look at what she's accomplished. Um, 
But one of the things that would tee us off is, is it kind of became cool for people to say, marriage is hard. It's so hard. I mean, it's just hard, especially I heard a lot of young pastors. You need to know that marriage is hard. And I thought, well, who wants to do that? You know? And so Julie would always say, we kind of think it's fun. You know what's hard? It's not marriage. It's loving. Loving is hard. Marriage is easy. It's loving that is hard. Because loving requires this. Loving requires this consistent self-sacrifice of what our natural instincts are in order to be kind, patient, bear all things. That, that is the tension of marriage. Marriage is wonderful when you're loving but the challenge is to love, to bear burdens, to carry them. Uh, Saturday night, we're having a ball with the Saturday service. I go down on the floor, we, we ask questions, we have a lot of fun. And Paul Thompson was here. And, and I, as I was watching, it made me think of Paul, like so many in our church that express their love by caring for their spouse in declining health. What a burden. When she could no longer know who he was, when she could no longer thank him, when, isn't that love? Isn't that bearing the burden? And I've watched so many men and women here do that. That's, that's love, right? So when we think of love so often, we think of the giddy, newlywed, stuff and that's all great but when I think of love I think of couples that have walked together for decades and are caring for each other in their frailty because that's bearing the burden don't tell Paul I said anything nice about him it'll ruin our relationship verse 13 don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share what is offered in the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I hadn't used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in hope that I, you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I can't boast because I'm compelled. What does he say? I can't help myself. I can't help myself. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. Where's the reward in that? Just this, just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Um, when I have hired people on our staff. One of the things I always want to know is what is your ministry? And you know how I, you can guarantee that you won't get hired by me? If they say, I haven't been able to get a job. Because if ministry for them is only a job, I don't want them. I want people that are like Paul that they're going to do ministry regardless. And it's just really cool when they get paid to. Because after all, what are we asking all of you to do? Right? 
the, the reality is the Apostle Paul shows that he bears a huge burden, but he does it because love of the gospel, he can't help himself. Let me finish the paragraph, and then I want to land the plane. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Is he a hypocrite? Is he a chameleon? No, he just loves the lost. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes at the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like somebody running aimless. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after having preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. I give up my rights, I give up my freedom, I give up my comfort, I give up my health, I give up whatever it takes. Why? For the good news that Jesus loves me. So that, you, so that other people can know that truth as well. It's an act of love. How do married couples sacrifice for each other the way they do? Because it's an act of love. How do people in the military sacrifice the way they do? It's an act of love. What is God calling you and me to do? In an act of love to carry whatever burden it takes to serve God and serve others, to proclaim the message of the gospel because it's the ultimate act of love. Because Jesus bore the burden of your and my sin. I was dead in my sin. He made me alive. I was separated from God. He reunited me with God. I, I was alienated. He made me a son. He gave me life. And as an act of love, I'll bear the burden to share that story. Love bears all things. You know what's interesting? I'm going to really pay for being nice to Paul Thompson. This is just going to ruin our relationship for years. But if you ask Paul about taking care of Elsie, he'll say it wasn't work. Because when you love that way, it doesn't feel like one. And when you start being aware of how big a burden you're having, you've forgotten what it is to love. But the more deeply you place your heart and mind for the better of other people, the less that burden weighs. Right? So you went all the way. Love bears all 
things. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we can be experts in listing how hard our burdens are while neglecting to see how much others have carried us. We wonder about the benefits of our salvation and forget the reality of what Jesus did. And we think of love as a burden when you really call us to carry it in such a way that the weight actually lessens. Teach us, Father, to be willing to do what you did for us, to carry the weight out of love. In Jesus' name, amen.